Hello. We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Well, good evening. It's good to be together this evening and to be able to worship and pray together. And um, I'm going to read our scripture and then pray for us. But uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 5. And um, it's funny, Cameron and I were laughing about this earlier, but it seems like, and it was unintentional from the beginning of the year, but it seems like everything we've been doing over the last several months has something to do with spiritual warfare or demons. And so... (laughs) And so you chose the book for, uh, or at least the topic for the book study um, on life groups. Uh, but then we went to doing Mark, and who knew that, uh, well, I mean, I guess if you read Mark, you realize it, but um, who knew there was so much spiritual warfare happening in the book of Mark? In fact, um, one of the uh, dissertations that I got from Fuller Seminary is on the demonic motif of the Gospel of Mark. It's really interesting. But um, anyway, so. Not sure exactly why we, uh, we seem to be studying so many of these different kinds of passages, but uh, I know that the Lord uses his word in effective ways in our lives. So um, as we look at this text tonight, obviously we're going to be focusing on the demoniac from Mark chapter 5. Uh, so let's read the text together. It's a little bit lengthy. It goes down to verse 20, and then we'll pray together and we'll begin our time looking at this, at this story. Verse 1, it says that they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. So night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out, And entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told told it in the city and, and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who seen it 
who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So let's pause just for a moment and pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word. Thankful that as we come together this evening to look at this story, that you are our God. Lord Jesus, that you are the king, the one who is sovereign over all things, including demonic spirits. And so, God, we pray that as we examine this story together this evening, that we would have a better understanding of your power, of your kingdom, of your kingship, and that as a result, we might trust you more in our lives and be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right. So as we look at this story tonight, there are several different things that, um, that I want us to kind of come away from. And um, as we look at this particular passage, I think that it's going to take us a little bit longer to, to work our way through it than normal, but not too long. So um, if you'll bear with me uh, a few more minutes than, than normal, uh, we'll, we'll chase some of these things down. There are three specific principles that I want us to kind of walk away from this passage this evening with. And the first one is this. Demons submit to Jesus' authority. Demons submit to Jesus' authority. Now, you look at this story as we begin the story. Um, lots of times, I'd say most times, when we begin to focus in on a passage of Scripture, it's absolutely essential that we understand what's going on in the context. Um, and not just necessarily, not just the, uh, the context, like the literary context, uh, chapter you know, 7 and chapter 9 or something like that or, or whatever it might be. Um, but, but the historical context is very important as well. The cultural context, all the things that would have been happening in the first century, the worldviews that the people during that period had, it's important for us to understand those things when it comes to looking at this particular passage uh, especially. So I want us to pause just for a moment and kind of pull back and look at this historical context that we find this story taking place in. Now we know when we look at the context and, and just the, the last couple of weeks, we know that Jesus has crossed over the Sea of Galilee and uh, he's taken his disciples with him. And you remember what happens, right? The story happens before this passage in chapter four, that as Jesus leaves in the evening with his disciples to cross over the sea, this storm comes up. And it's such a bad storm that the disciples are concerned. They think that they're going to die. They're taking on water and Jesus has fallen asleep. And so they ask him to wake up and he gets up and he calms the storm and everything is fine. Now, they're terrified. Now, they're, they're fishermen, right? How often do you think in their life they'd seen a storm? Well, probably quite a bit, right? I mean, they're fishermen. They know what storms are like. They know what's going on. Uh, surely they had encountered storms in the past but what makes this particular instance different? Well, I think the, the key is that they were crossing over the sea, actually crossing the deep part of the sea, which is not normally done 
uh, with Jewish fishermen at the time. Uh, Jesus is, is most likely taking his disciples from his home base. If you look, I don't think we have a map, but if you look at a map of the Sea of Galilee, he's taking them most likely from Capernaum, which is on the north side, uh, to the east side. And so he's taking them across a very large chunk of the Sea of Galilee. And, uh, and so they're, they're moving across this, this area of the, of the sea to get to the region of the Decapolis. And the Decapolis was the, the region of the Gentiles, which is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And Decapolis simply just means the ten cities. It's the ten Gentile cities. Now, Jewish people believed that the sea was, in some sense, a gateway to the place of the dead. Um, this is not just something that Jews believed at the time, um, but it's something that many of the peoples during that period believed, uh, that the sea acted as a gateway. In fact, uh, when you, uh, if you go up to Caesarea Philippi, there's a, there's a temple to the god Pan, who was a, a Greek god, uh, and they, the people there would make sacrifices and so on, but they had this one particular pool inside the temple, and that pool they would offer human sacrifices and they would go through and so on. But the pool itself was called the Gate of Hades because it was a gateway to go to the underworld, to Hades itself. So, so how you, have, you have these, these Jewish men who have this kind of understanding, we'll talk a little bit more about it, about this, the sea itself being this deep, troubling darkness. And, uh, and they would have understood it as, as an abyss. To go underneath this is to possibly never come back out again uh, because this is the place of the dead. Now, a friend of mine, Adrian, who's a, a devout Jew and, uh, and guide, one of the things he explained to me when I was over in, in Israel, he began to explain to me that the, the, the abyss, this concept in Jewish philosophy was synonymous with dark, with the sad, with the unknown of what Sheol is. And it's often, it's often joined together with the concept of hell, which, uh, which he was quick to explain that the, the Hebrew scriptures don't really talk too much about hell. The New Testament talks about hell. And so this concept of, of the dead, the place of the dead, is something that they would have been very aware of. Now, <clears throat> Greeks were terrified of the open sea. And most of the time, they didn't actually go out onto the open sea. It was something very troubling to them uh, because they, they had a deep belief in Poseidon and Neptune and these other gods uh, that could just very easily drag them down into the gates of Hades. Um, and so they, they were very conscious about sailing in sight of the land because they feared the abyss so very much. And, um, and this abyss was the realm of the demons or the gods of the underworld and so on. And so what we do know about culture, and especially Jewish culture during the first century, is that it was extremely, it was extremely changed by Greek culture. Uh, when Alexander the Great took over most of the known world at the time, uh, one of the things that Alexander did differently than everyone else, which made his kingdom, um, I guess, more effective in some ways, is that he was able to somehow import Greek culture, Greek language, in ways that no other, um, no other invading culture was able to do. And one of the ways he did that was through incentives. Instead of people having to pay exorbitant amount of taxes, he said that if you would build a temple to the Greek gods in your city... If you'll build a gymnasium where people can work out and where they can be educated according to the Greek ways, then you'll have tax breaks. And so many cities, especially Jewish cities, had done that. Um, it, was, it was beneficial to them. And as a result, it began to change the way that they understood their worldview. And so Jewish culture, Greek culture, all these things combined 
uh, help us to understand that the Jewish men, um, the Jewish people, and the Jewish readers of what Mark's gospel is, is written for, um, they would have understand these things, understood these things in maybe a slightly different way than maybe we do when we first read it. Now, <coughs> back to the story. It says that Jesus and the disciples, um, they came to the country or the region of the Gerasenes. The Gerasenes is the largest, at that time, the largest city of the Decapolis. Um, and today the city is, is Jerash, but it's in Jordan. It's the same city. So Jesus and his disciples arrive there on the shore, and, and Jesus steps out of the boat only to be met by this wild-eyed man running, and he's shouting, he's screaming most likely. It seems as though he's very angry. Now, remember the context. Most of the time, I mean, I don't know about you guys, when I've, when I've thought about this story in the past, I usually think about, you know, kind of a tranquil beach, right? And it's daytime, and here Jesus kind of in his, of course, his like red sash, he steps out, right? And he's on the beach there, and then there's this man who's, you know, barely got clothes on. He's got some clothes on because, you know, it's in, in the Bible, he's got to have clothes on. And, and, he's, and he's kneeling there on the beach, kind of tranquil looking, and, I mean, that's kind, of the, that's kind of the story that kind of, maybe it's because of children's Bibles or those pictures that we got when we were kids in class. But I don't think that's what happens at all. I think it's completely different. For the first thing is, I don't think it's the daytime. You remember what time of day they left the other side? It was the evening time. The sun is setting. Now, for one, it's not a good idea to go across the sea when it's nighttime. That's probably a bad idea. But Jesus leads them across it anyway. So they arrive. Now they've gone through this storm. Who knows how long that's taken. They've gotten to the other side. Now it takes about, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes in a slower boat to travel across the middle of the Sea of Galilee. It takes a little while. Um, but if you're, if you're traveling by a boat that has a sail, it's probably not a very quick trip. So you're looking at maybe a couple of hours to make this journey across from Capernaum all the way down to the Gerasene. And so by the time they get there, probably the only light is the moon. And so they arrive at this, let's just say a beach, a place where they can land the boat. And they begin to get out. Jesus steps out into a place that is isolated, isolated from everything else. There's probably not very much going on on the, uh, on the beach. And as soon as his feet touches, here is this man running. He had seen the boat coming from afar off. And I mean, think about this. They, they've arrived, not only, this is a boat full of Jewish men who've now arrived in the region of the Gentiles at night and in a graveyard area. This is all bad. This is all really bad. Nothing good is, can come from this is probably what the disciples are thinking. So Jesus' foot touches the beach, and immediately this man darts out of the darkness, probably like a phantom, straight toward the boat, screaming, yelling. Now think about how he's described. He's covered in blood, probably crusted, dried, smelly, and he's naked. All of those things being very, very unclean. And it says that he has demons. Now let's pause just for uh, a moment. I think that uh, we've kind of talked about these things um, over the last several months, but um, I think it'd be helpful to kind of tease out and define what do we mean by demons? Um, because 
Sometimes there's confusion about where they've actually come from. There, there's typically three different explanations um, in evangelical circles uh, in regards to the origin of demons. Um, the first one is that demons are disembodied spirits of inhabitants of a pre-Adamic earth. Normally, this comes from the idea of the gap theory. If you're familiar with any of the Genesis studies, um, Genesis 1, 1, and Genesis 1, 2, uh, some argue, I don't think effectively, but argue that there's a gap between those two things. And that whatever happened there, that is the place where demons originated from these pre-human people that now are disembodied. Uh, so it's not very credible, but that's one that people have suggested uh, over the years. Number two, demons are the monstrous offspring of angels and pre-flood women. Now that sounds weird, right? Sounds weird, but it's in the Bible. So uh, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 2, this is one of the ancient theories about where demons might have come from. You find this story, the sons of God come, take women, have children, they have offspring with these women, and these offspring are called the Nephilim, or the, the men of renown, or the giants, or something like that. Now, certainly it seems like, when you work through that whole mess of a story, um, it seems like there are spiritual beings that are doing something that they shouldn't be doing, and as a result, they are having offspring that is illegitimate, and as a result, God then judges the world and uh, brings about the flood, and there's lots and lots of devastation and death and problems. Um, so I think there are some spiritual things happening here. I don't think necessarily that that's the complete origin story behind demons. Uh, the last one, probably the most widely accepted and probably the one that all of us are more likely familiar with, is that demons are fallen angels. Fallen angels. Now, when you think about fallen angels, um, Merrill Unger, um, who's a... Um, an evangelical scholar. He's written a book on biblical demonology. One of the things that he explains is that he divides these fallen angels into two categories. And I think for our purposes for looking at this text tonight, and I know this is more teaching kind of than preaching, but um, we'll, we'll get there. Um, when, we, when we look at the two categories, it's really important for this particular text uh, because it kind of helps us know what's happening. Um, Unger says that there are two categories, some that are bound and some that are free. Now, when I say free, I don't mean necessarily like free reigning in there, you can do whatever they want, but they're free to operate in the realm that God has given them to operate at this given time. So he believes that the, the fallen angels that are bound are those described by Peter. So in Peter's epistle, uh, those bound in shackles, um, and then uh, those found in Jude. Um, and he, Jude's linking them back even to this period of the Nephilim and so on. Um, so whatever it is, the ones that are bound seem to have done some really terrible things to the point where it brought about the judgment of God, and now God has bound them in the abyss, as it were, down in a dark place so that they can't get out. So they're bound completely. And, uh, and it's interesting, when you look at Peter's, Peter's words, uh, the demons are bound, this is strange, in a place called Tartarus. Most, most translate that into pit or abyss, some translate it as hell, but the word is not any of those things. The word is actually Tartarus, and it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. In fact, it's a, it's a Greek mythology place, right? And um, so it's really fascinating, but it, it, it speaks to this idea of the pit this, pit, this pit of darkness, this abyss. Now, the demons that are free, 
as it were. And uh, these are the ones that did not leave their proper place. So the realm in which they are allowed to operate, principalities and powers that we find in Ephesians chapter 6, um, these are the ones that are operating even today in, uh, in, in, in working to deceive and destroy people's lives. Now, they're the ones that seem to be roaming about on this particular plane in the spiritual world under the leadership of Satan um, because he is the prince of the power of the air, as the Apostle Paul says. So, that kind of helps us understand just a little bit about demons, who they are, um, and then even, in some sense, the way that they're operating at this current time. Now, there are, when we think about this story, we think about this concept of possession. And uh, this is the one that gets a little bit tricky to try and understand exactly what possession means and what are the, the characteristics of possession. And I think the best way to do it is to look at this story to unpack uh, what it is that it seems this man is doing or what kind of signs this man is displaying in order to understand uh, more fully what possession is. For one, I'm not that comfortable with the term possession because I think what it does is it conveys too much about demons. It conveys that they have too much power, things that they don't have. They don't have the, the ability to own or to possess necessarily, but they have the ability to, inf in, to uh, infest more or less. Um, and to have limited amounts of control, sometimes more than others, in someone's life or in a situation. So there is a, an evangelical scholar, his name's Kurt Cook. He's a German theologian. But from this story, he kind of unpacks eight really significant characteristics of demonic possession that I think are really helpful just to, to lay out. I don't know if they're going to be on the screen or not. Are they? Okay. Okay. Um, Lay those out, and then we'll look at the story, and we can kind of see how those things are flushing out. Number one, demons are actually resident in the person concerned. Um, now, that, like I said, I don't know that that necessarily means that they own. I don't think that that's the case. But there is some, this, some sort of residency or attachment to this person, and we see this in the story itself. Um, number two, unusual strength exhibited by the possessed person. Um, now that we see this in the story, don't we? Uh, what's the man able to do? He's breaking chains. Can any of you guys break chains? I cannot break chains. So he's got some sort of preternatural strength, something beyond the natural kind of strength. Number three, visible conflict within the possessed person. This person is, is not right. He's obviously being tormented in some ways. Uh, number four, a phenomenon of resistance or an opposition to the things of God. Now, this one has been kind of reinterpreted over the years um, by Roman Catholics and others. But what, what Cook is saying here is that even as we look at this Gadarene or this, this demoniac here in this story, he has an aversion to Christ. He doesn't want to be around Christ. He has a problem with Jesus being the Son of God um, that works itself out in fear. Uh, number five, some sort of clairvoyancy, which is to say he knows more than he should. Right? So here's this man, he, he's coming up to Jesus, he doesn't know Jesus, he's never met Jesus before in his life, and yet somehow he knows his name, and he also knows that he's divine, he's the son of God. So he knows more than a human being ought to know. That's another characteristic. Number six, ability to speak with voices not his own. We see him speaking with a loud voice, um, and that one's a little bit more tricky uh, to try and chase down, but um, he's speaking with a different voice, louder voice, probably than, than normal. Number seven, sudden deliverance. Now this one's important too because 
because it's difficult when you begin to kind of look at people in their lives, whether it's, it's uh, mental, uh, mental issues or whether it's demonic issues uh, or other kinds of spiritual issues. Um, when it's spiritual issues, fighting off the flesh and things like that, or if it's mental incapabilities or problems, these take many, many times, they take long time to work through. As you begin to you know, work with the person, whether that's uh, through counseling or different means, to try and help them work through these different problems. But what we find with demonic issues is, especially in this story specifically, I speak of this story, there is a sudden deliverance. It says that the man was, was clothed and in his right mind. Totally different after Jesus had removed the demons from him. And then last, number eight, transference. We see the demons going from one person into pigs. So they're, they're transferring where they are, are attached. And we see that in the story as well. So we see these characteristics fitting within this story that we find in, in the Gospel of Mark quite well. Um, so... It's obvious when we look at the story, this, uh, this man is being affected in some way by demonic spirits. His own control of his mind, his own control of his body have been compromised. And now this demon or demons, as we find out, um, seems to be controlling him. And so he runs toward Jesus. Now, so demons must submit to Jesus's kingship. The second principle I want you to take home with you is this. Demons do not receive mercy from Jesus. This is important for us to understand. Demons do not receive mercy from Jesus. They are not like people. They do not get grace. They get judgment. So look back at the story with me in verse 7. It says, And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was asking him, for he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And so Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, I think sometimes when I've looked at this passage in the past, I, I have this assumption that Jesus is just, seems like he's being kind of nice to the demons. And I've had problems with that. Seems like he's just being kind. He's kind of, he's kind of doing the things that they're asking he, he does what the demons ask of him. It seems like he's just capitulating to whatever it is that they want to do. They want to move from this person to these pigs. And he's like, okay, that's no problem. I, I, and I've, I've wondered in myself, why is it that it seems, Jesus seems to be kind to these demonic entities? But I think as we look at the passage, as we, as we kind of walk through the dialogue, I think what we'll see is that Jesus is not capitulating. Jesus is actually crushing. And Jesus is actually judging these demonic entities. Now, I want you to focus on the dialogue. Look back there at the story. Now, when you look at the story, sometimes, and I think it's because of the way the biblical writer has kind of presented it, um, it looks as though the demon is the one speaking first, doesn't it? looks like he's the one that's speaking first. So it looks like Jesus is the one that's being passive in the conversation. But that's not at all the case. Jesus is the one who's king. 
Jesus is one who's Lord of all. He's the one with the divine authority. He's the one who engages in battle against the demonic. Look at verse 8. It says, For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So why does the demon begin to speak? Well, Jesus is already speaking to him. So as he's running up, Jesus speaks to him. The demonic person is running up, and Jesus is standing there on the beach, and Jesus immediately commands the demon. He says, ex elthe, which literally means get out. That's what he says to him. And then he identifies who he is. He says, you are an unclean spirit. You are an unclean spirit. You are impure. You are ungodly. You are evil. And only then does the demoniac, the demons, begin to beg Jesus. And it says that they say, crying out with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. And then he goes on. He says he begs him earnestly not to send them out of the country or out of the region. So Jesus controls the situation, controls the demonic entities by demanding their name. The demons respond saying that, in fact, they've decided to call themselves legion. Now, how many... How many Roman soldiers were in a legion? Anybody? About 5,000. About 5,000. Ten cohorts, about 5,000 troops. So here what they're saying is, there's about 5,000 of us in here. That's how many of us. And these 5,000 demons are begging Jesus, are pleading with Jesus, scared to death of Jesus. Now just pause. Isn't that great? Right? The one who is our elder brother, the one who is our king, we do not have to be fearful of anything. 5,000 demons are shaking because they're in front of the son of the most high God. Right? It's comforting to know that Jesus is king and that there is no one who stands above him. So the demon is... Our demons are pleading with Jesus not to expel them from the region. And this, this is what Jesus is constantly doing. He's constantly expelling them. That's what he's doing as he's inaugurating his kingdom. He's pushing them out of the region. Every time he's exercising a demon, he's pushing them out of their area of control. He's removing them and he's establishing his own kingdom. That's what Jesus is doing. Now, Luke's account of the same story in Luke chapter 8 gives us a little bit more information about what the demons, about their concerns at this particular point in the story. In Luke chapter 8 and verse 31, it says that they, the demons, begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. So they're not just not wanting to leave the, the region or the country, but they're saying, please don't send us into the abyss. Please don't bind us. Please do not send us where we cannot get out. Now, remember, we talked about this. Where is the abyss? In the minds of the Jewish people? Well, Luke's readers would have understood this as well. The abyss is this place of torment. It's this idea of deep darkness. Where is, where is the nearest gateway to the abyss in their minds? It's right behind Jesus. It's the sea. The sea is right behind them. So what happens? Well, look back at the story. Verse 11. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. 
And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Jesus is not capitulating here. Jesus grants them access to the very thing that will bring about their complete destruction. He allows them to transfer their presence into pigs. Now, do you find the irony in this? You have, Jesus has already said, you are unclean spirits. And so these unclean spirits ask to go into unclean animals. And Jesus allows it. Unclean to unclean. That's what is happening. And then the pigs throw themselves with the demonic spirits into the abyss. Sealing their fate, sealing their judgment. So demons submit to Jesus' authority. Demons do not receive mercy from Jesus. And finally, this is the last thing. Jesus delivers us from the power of the demonic for the sake of the kingdom of God. So look back at the story. Verse 14, down to the end of the, the section. It says, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus. They saw the, the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, and he's clothed, and he's in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home, go home to your friends and tell how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Now, what is the result of this story? I think sometimes we stop here. Well, he, he, he got the demons out, right? That's the result. That's one result. There's deliverance for this man. There's this powerful encounter. Jesus commands these demonic spirits out of this man. He's freed from this demonic torture. He becomes a follower of Jesus. And now he's, he's given this new life. I mean, he's given it back, right? I mean, he's living out in tombs, naked and bleeding. No one's taking care of him. Who knows what the man has been eating, right? He has a new life and a new purpose now and a mission. So now he's supposed to go to the Decapolis, not just to his city, right? To the Decapolis and begin to tell his testimony of what God it is, what it is that God has done for him through Jesus. Now, there's deliverance. That's one result. The second is kingdom advancement. How effective was this man in telling the Decapolis about Jesus? You ever thought about that? Well, we can jump forward into our story just a little bit. Chronologically, about a year passes before Jesus comes back to the Decapolis. Mark 7 picks us back up. Mark chapter 7, verse 31, it says, Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Then Mark 8, 1 through 2. It says, in those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to him, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. How many people were gathered there? About 4,000. That's what the text says. About 4,000. It's the same region. I think that this man, in his obedience to the call of Christ upon his life, 
He goes out into the Decapolis. He begins to spread the message of this Jewish Messiah who has come. He tells them about the kingdom of God. And 4,000 people show up because of the testimony of this ex-demoniac. You see, Jesus is always working for his kingdom. He's always ruling and reigning. Now, I bet on that night, it's evening time, and as they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, going into Gentile territory, the disciples were probably thinking, really? Why? Can't we do this tomorrow? Why, why do we need to do this now? Why do we need to go to the Decapolis anyway? What's the point? So they get over there, all of this craziness happens, and then Jesus says, all right, guys, let's pack it up. We're done here, and takes them back across the sea. He stays less than one day. Why does he do all of that? For this. He calls one man out, sends him into the Decapolis to preach and teach, to, to show the testimony of God and what God has done. So friends, think about this, personal application. Sometimes in life, doesn't it seem like we don't really understand why God does certain things? Why is it that God has called you to this kind of a job? Why is it that God has allowed these kinds of troubles to happen in your life? Why is it that God is allowing this or doing this? And the reality is we may not know, but it may be that one day is going to change the lives of thousands of people. One year is going to change the eternal destiny as you testify to the goodness and the power and the wonder of Christ. It might change the lives of many people around you. All of us, according to Paul, were at one time under the domination of the evil one. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, In the case of unbelievers, in, the case, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But this is the beautiful thing. Paul says this in Colossians that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And this is the beautiful part. He's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And for a purpose, just like the demoniac, we have a purpose. And that purpose is the telling of what God has done for us. That's why Peter says it this way. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So let that be true of us as well. Let us be testimony, uh, let us be testifiers of God's goodness and God's grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that because of this man's testimony, Many heard and believed. And Father, we pray that tonight, as you're working in our lives, God, we pray that through your spirit, you would help us to be faithful so that as a result of our testimony of how good you are, many would hear and believe in the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name.